0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Let's face it, divorce is a painful and complicated subject to talk about in America today, where about half of all marriages end in divorce. Our laws have changed to accept no-fault divorce, and many of us are unaware of what the Bible teaches on this critical subject. To figure out the biblical perspective on divorce and remarriage, we will need to consider three scriptures from the Old Testament and three from the New, we will focus our attention on not only the reasons that allow for divorce in Deuteronomy, but how Jesus interpreted this when he was asked about it. Please pardon the poor quality of the first couple of minutes of audio. We had some recording issues, but it clears up after about two and a half minutes. Here now is podcast episode 114, Divorce and Remarriage. So the question is not what's what well, position on divorce is palatable? The question is not what's convenient for me. The question is not what fits in with our modern sensibilities. But the question is, well, what does the Bible say? And so that's what I want to do. I want to look at three scriptures from the Old Testament and three scriptures from the New Testament. And to start, I want to look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. So we'll turn there to begin and we read, and I'm going to be kind of cruising along because there's a lot of material, you see that I have a lot of pages in my notes for today. I've been researching this for a long time, for many years actually, and it's a topic that I kind of always have on the back burner. I always want to hear people's perspectives on it because it is such a controversial subject, and I've read a lot of what other Christians who are interested in this subject have to say and I I try to give you footnotes so if you're interested you can look up those resources on your own and continue the investigation but what I share with you uh, I try to share as biblically as possible so because I'm not the guru I don't have the answer to every conundrum to every possible scenario and my authority is, is really based on what the Bible says and if the Bible's wrong, then I'm wrong. If the Bible's right, then I'm right. And that's just where I, that's where I choose to stand. So uh, Malachi 2.13 says, This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So God is not in a good place with His people. Or to say it a better way, the people are not in a good place with God. They're making offerings and He's not regarding them. God is not accepting the worship of His people, which in this period of time would be probably animal sacrifice and grain offerings, that sort of thing. Verse 14, Yet you say, for what reason? Well, you want to know? Here's the answer. Malachi will tell you. Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, but not one has done so, who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16, for I hate divorce. What God says here is that He hates divorce. There's a translational issue. I give you a long, complicated footnote if you want to read it. But the NASB and the NET both say, I hate divorce. And some other translations take it in a different way. But the point is still clear, what's going on here. In antiquity, women, especially divorced women, were vulnerable. Because the way a patriarchal society works is you go from being under your father's care, under your father's protection, to being a part of your husband's household. And if he sends you out because you got old, or because you burned the toast... Or because uh, you got in an argument and he's like, well, I've got all the power here because women didn't have the right to divorce. And a man sends her out he, and he can just upgrade to another woman. And that's what Malachi is rebuking the people for. Men were dealing treacherously with the wives of their youth. We have this today, right? Where somebody divorces their wife and then marries some young girl, right? This is, this is nothing new under the sun here. And God says, look... You can't do that and expect it to be okay with me. God will not regard your offering. You can offer God a million dollars, but if you're dealing treacherously with the wife of your youth, he doesn't want it. That's what Malachi said. Of course, they wouldn't use dollars in his, in his time. And so it says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 16, And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God says he hates divorce. The second scripture is in Deuteronomy. Flip over, please, to Deuteronomy. We're going to bypass this one and go to chapter 24. I'll just summarize for you what chapter 22 says. It's a law that protects a virtuous woman from getting divorced. If her husband falsely accuses her of premarital sex, he will get whipped, fined, and barred from divorcing her the rest of his life so that's something that apparently was a loophole for some guys where they're like well i want to divorce my wife and they were looking for a reason they said oh well she had she had premarital she wasn't a virgin on her wedding night and so that was something that would happen so there's a law here in deuteronomy 22 that says okay well if it turns out and there's evidence of her virginity her father would keep, and it's a bit complicated, but if it turned out that he was lying, he's gonna get whipped, I mean, this is really something. He gets whipped, he gets fined, and then he's never allowed to divorce her for the rest of his life, doesn't matter what she does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which, if you think about it, it's quite a punishment because they're not in a good, happy relationship after he's falsely accused her of not being a virgin, right? <laughs> and uh, so that that is uh, that's something. And then if, and if she was found out to have not been a virgin at marriage, uh, she would be stoned. She would be executed. She would get the capital punishment for that. So uh, that shows you how seriously they took the subject of virginity and premarital sex. But I don't want to get too much into that because chapter 24 has really got to be our focus, more or less, for the rest of our time here. Because everything after Deuteronomy 24 is just... Interpreting what it said, even, even what Jesus says. It's really, Deuteronomy 24 is right there in the background. Chapter 24, verse 1 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. There's so much in here. I can't deal with it all, but no boomerang wives. Right? I mean, if you send, if you send her out, you divorce her, you could take her back. But if you, if you send her out and then she marries somebody else, that's it. You can't take her back again. That's really what this is talking about, However, our focus is verse 1. And that, uh, just a couple of little words there. And that makes all the difference in the world, it turns out. Uh, Let me read it again. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes. So that's one key part, right? She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and so on. Okay, so a lot of this turns on this word ervat, which is the word for nakedness in Hebrew. Translated indecency here. Do you see that in verse 1? Because he has found some indecency in her, okay? So before I get to that, let me just mention the whole idea of a certificate of divorce, I want to say this first, was a huge step forward for women and women's rights in ancient Israel because it gave her a defined status in the society. Because in the modern term they use for that is a get G-E-T, a get. Uh, and that is a document that says this woman's divorced and if she's divorced she has a certificate of divorce then she's free to remarry that's just the way that whole system worked and you, and you see that it's just assumed here if he sends her out with a certificate of divorce and she gets remarried there's no, there's no debate about it it's just like yeah if you, if you did have that divorce then you could remarry it's, it's pretty it's not even debated here now this word, ervat which is uh, in the ESV and the NASB translated some indecency, in the Jewish Publication Society Bible uh, is translated something obnoxious. <laughs> so if he finds something obnoxious in her, he can divorce her. <laughs> You're out for that one, huh? I'm going to be out. Uh, King James says some uncleanness, right? And then the NET, New English Translation, says something offensive. And the NRSV says objectionable. What's so fascinating, why this is so, to me at least, confusing, is that the the exact Hebrew phrase is ervat devar. And ervat means nakedness, and devar means word. It's just the Hebrew word for word. And so, uh, just like in Greek, the word word can mean not just a word, but also a thing. So that's why they're getting this idea of something. So it's not just like a naked word, <laughs> which should be a literal translation. The translators are saying, well, it's, it's some indecency. It's something. And so the word nakedness in, in the Hebrew leans us towards the idea that there, there's probably something sexual going on here. But like I showed you, none of these translations, these, this is a wide range of translations, go with nakedness here. I, th- I find that utterly fascinating. My, my knowledge of Hebrew is way too limited to weigh in on which way that should be translated. But... The rabbis argued about it. And so they wanted to know what precisely does ervat mean? In other words, what is the cause for which I can divorce my wife? That's what they want to argue about. So we have three perspectives in the Babylonian Talmud, which is a document after the time of the New Testament, but records some that was before the time of Jesus. And they give three opinions, one from Hillel, who lived a generation before Christ, one from Shammai who lived during the time of Christ and one from Akiva who lived a generation after Christ. These are three Jewish rabbis and this is Tractate Gittin 90A, which is part of this Jewish code called the Babylonian Talmud, Mishnah. The house of Shammai says, so this is the Shammai interpretation on Erevot. A man should not divorce his wife unless he has found her guilty of some, some unseemly conduct. So Shammai is taken as unseemly conduct, very literally. As it says, because he has found some unseemly thing in her. The house of Hillel, however, says, that he may divorce her even if she has merely spoiled his food. Wow. <laughs> Since it says, he hath found some unseemly thing in her. Look, if you're, if you're waiting for dinner, and it's spoiled, it's burnt. That's unseemly, right? Right, gentlemen? So that's, uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> that, I'm joking, just to be clear. That's Hillel. That's what Hillel is saying. And that's the, the, the Jewish rabbi before the time of Christ. Um, Shammai says it's got to be something that's unseemly in her. And then Akiva, he's really bad. Akiva says, He may divorce her even if he finds another woman more beautiful than she is. She doesn't even have to mess up dinner. As it says, it comes to pass if she find no favor in his eyes. So just to summarize, Shammai says some unseemly conduct. That's what Eravod is. Hillel says she spoiled the food. And Akiva says you found someone better. You found someone more attractive. So these are, and this is not a joke, these are three actual ancient Jewish interpretations from around the time of Jesus. And I asked uh, our Jewish instructor, our Hebrew instructor, what is the the uh, position on divorce, and she said, you know, it's it's something that's accepted. And I, I looked online, and I and I found some stuff I'll share with you in a minute. But the question is, who's your rabbi? Are those are rabbis. And and for us as Christians, the the real question is, how did Jesus interpret Deuteronomy 24? <laughs> I mean, these guys they don't have authority over us. I mean, they're Funny, I think, or sad, depending on how you look at it, right? But what does Jesus say? So well, let's look at Jesus. We're going to look at three scriptures in the New Testament. Matthew five thirty-one. Uh, I've got this up on the screen for you, but we're going to go to Matthew nineteen in just a second. So go ahead and turn over to Matthew nineteen. Matthew five thirty-one is part of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's very quick. A lot of the little antitheses where Jesus says, "You have heard it was said, but I say unto you," they have. A number of verses to them this was only two verses it's very short very quick and then he moves on to the next topic so verse 31 it was also said whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce but I say to you that so this right here is a quotation from Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 so Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 it's like you heard it was said If you, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, now that's interesting, right? We want to, what is he going to say? Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, so that's what we call the exception clause, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So who is Jesus most like? Is he like Shammai? Is he like Hillel? Is he like Akiva? Well, honestly, he's stricter than all three. I mean, Shemaiah left it pretty nebulous, some unseemly thing. Hillel said she she burned dinner. Akiva said you found somebody more attractive. Jesus is like, look, unless it's sexual immorality, you're, you're committing adultery by moving on to another woman. So the question is, well, what is adultery? We just heard what adultery is. Adultery is where one or both of those involved in that relationship, in that sexual intercourse, Are married one or both are married and they're not married to each other right we know what this means however that's really a key for understanding the way this exception clause works here okay because the second part of it says let's just take the exception out of it everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery let's look at the last part whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery on face value that doesn't make any sense a, a divorced woman can't commit adultery. She's not married. Only married people, can, at least on her end, she can't commit adultery if she's no longer married, if she's divorced, right? So so how, 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 how do we resolve this? Well, there, there has to be some sense in which she's still married. You can't, Unmarried people can't commit adultery. They can commit fornication. They can do all kinds of other things. But adultery is reserved for married people. And so in some sense, unless it was for sexual immorality that the divorce happened, as far as God's concerned, these, these people are still married. Um, and I don't wanna to go too much into detail on that, but I wanna show you this from a website called Judaism, or it's called JewFAQ.org. is a very generic website by this, this lady, Tracy Rich, who is uh, an Orthodox Jew. And she's, she's not a rabbi or an authority figure, but she's just like writing down what is the tradition, how do we do things, just like educating people on what Judaism is on a basic level. And I found this totally fascinating. She said, it is important to note that a civil divorce, this is according to Orthodox Judaism, there are three branches. There's conservative, reformed, and orthodox. The so orthodox is the more uh, Bible based out of those three or the more conservative, whatever you wanna call it. Um, It is important to note that the civil divorce is not sufficient to dissolve a Jewish marriage. As far as Jewish law is concerned, a couple remains married until the woman receives the get. This has been a significant problem. Many liberal Jews have a religiously valid marriage. In other words, they went to the rabbi and it was in the synagogue and all the rest when they got married. Yet, they do not obtain a religiously valid divorce. So you get married in the synagogue, but when you want to get divorced... They don't go to the rabbi, they go to the governmental authorities. Okay, that's what she's talking about. If the woman remarries after such a procedure, her second marriage is considered an adulterous one, and her children are considered manzarim, which I take it is a bad word. It means bastards are illegitimate. This is a modern Jewish understanding of divorce and remarriage. And now, they don't have they don't have a, a, a Jesus, right? So they're not, they're not looking at it the same way we are. They're just looking at Deuteronomy 24, certificate of divorce, the get. That's the, for them, that's still considered the way, the way you do it. And um, look at Matthew 19. Let's, let's see what happened when the Pharisees came up and asked Jesus about this. And they sort of interrogated him. And they, they, they popped this question to Jesus in Matthew 19:3. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Any cause sounds suspiciously like no fault. Divorce is what we have today. So the Pharisees asked Jesus to weigh in on the debate. Verse 4, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh.'" So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There's Genesis 2, 24. A man leaves, he cleaves, and he's one flesh with his wife. He leaves his parents' house, he cleaves to his wife, and they are one flesh. Now, what's so cool about what Jesus says when they tie the knot is that God has joined together. Did you see that in verse 6? What therefore God has joined together, let, let not man separate. In marriage, God does something. It's not just the two people making a commitment with their words or signing a document for the government, and it's not just the witnesses in the room, and it's not just the officiant authorized by the government or the pastor or the priest or whatever. God's there. And from Jesus' perspective, He says what God has joined together, let no man separate. So in the consummation of the marriage, God joins the people together. There's a spiritual thing that happens. I mean, we know there's a physical thing that happens, but there's also a spiritual aspect to this, that God joins them together. And so Jesus is, is saying, well, look, if God joins them together, who are you guys? What, what are you... Humans are going to tear this apart? So you have to understand the, the angle they're approaching Jesus at. The angle is... Can we divorce for any cause? And Jesus is like, divorce? What's wrong with you knuckleheads? Right? He's saying, divorce? God joined these people together. You're going to split them apart? What's wrong with you? You're just a human. So uh, then, of course, they come back. Like a a, a good Jewish discussion, they're like, what about the ervat? What about Deuteronomy 24? Verse 7, they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce, the get? And to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus here draws a distinction between permitting and commanding. It says that God permit, they said, well, Moses commanded. Jesus said, God allowed it. He allowed it. He's not, it's not a command. He's allowing you guys to get divorced. Um, but he recognizes that it's legitimate. Jesus is not contradicting it either. He is just limiting it. Like the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clarifies that the ervat, which is translated indecency in the ESV and the NASB, is pornea, which is a Greek word we looked at before when we talked about premarital sex. And that's the word translated sexual immorality, unchastity, or fornication. So for the, what's called the exception clause, that's like when you actually can get a divorce according to Jesus, and then presumably also get remarried, we have three possible interpretations. and honest hearted Christians take all three of these positions. There are different people, scholars, and so on that, that argue for these. The first is that pornea here refers to adultery. The second is that it refers to Premarital sex, like in Deuteronomy 22, you find out she's not a virgin on the wedding day, then you would be allowed to divorce her. Or the last option is based on Leviticus 18, which talks about all these family relations, incest, or you're, you're marrying your relatives, that sort of thing. And that, that would be grounds for divorce. The standard Greek lexon, the BDAG, the word pornea means unlawful sexual intercourse. It does not mean only adultery premarital sex, or incest. It would would apply to all those, plus a whole bunch of other things that would come under the broad category of sexual misbehavior or misconduct, right? Uh, Richard Hayes, I I found his take on this to be pretty helpful. He, He writes, finally, any interpretation of the exception clause must do justice to the very general meaning of pornea in contemporary Greek usage. A lot of times what people do is they're studying the Bible and what they'll do is they'll look at how the word was used just in the New Testament. Well, you can a lot of times get some insight that way, but the New Testament did not exist in a vacuum. I mean, there were tons of other Greek documents that were also written around that time that we have access to today. And so what does the word mean in general is is a question. And then Does it have a specific meaning in the New Testament, or are they just using it the way you use it in general? And what he's saying is that you have to take into consideration the contemporary Greek usage of that word. It's a generic term for all sorts of, and this is his term, sexual misconduct. Unless the immediate context provides some good reason for limiting its sphere of application, it ought to be construed as a catch-all term, not as a terminus technicus for one specific offense, which is a Latin phrase meaning technical term. Uh, you can uh, show off to your friends like, oh, that's a terminus technicus, isn't it? You yeah. uh, know, technical term. He's like, look, pornia is not a technical term. It just means sexual misconduct. Thus, the best interpretation is that the Methean, which is Matthew's, exception clause leaves the door open for divorce on the grounds of a variety of offenses related to sexual immorality. The new element here, that Jesus brings in in Matthew 19, however, is the assertion that the man who divorces his wife makes her into an adulteress, and that the person who marries a legally divorced woman also is committing adultery. Presumably, the logic is that a certificate of divorce has no real effect. The marriage remains in force. If the divorced woman remarries, as she might have to do for legal and economic protection, she will thereby de facto commit adultery against the original husband who dismissed her, and the man who marries her will also be committing adultery against the first husband. The effect of this teaching is to declare that the Deuteronomic divorce law null and void except in cases of pornea. So going back to Deuteronomy 24, what's the ervat there? What's that indecency? According to Jesus, it's pornea, which is this broad term for sexual uh, immorality. On remarriage, some argue that sexual immorality allows for divorce, but not remarriage, okay? Uh, Take a look at that again, Matthew 19, verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So some people are saying, okay, you can get divorced for sexual immorality, but you can't get remarried. Other people are saying, well, if it's a divorce, then you can get remarried. And so there are, there are different points of view on this. But look, if a divorce is legitimate, the marriage is no longer in force. If it's legitimate, not just I'm not talking about just legally here. I'm talking about in God's eyes. If God, I mean, these are God's laws we're talking about here. So if God says, except for this exception, and then Jesus later on clarifies that sexual immorality of whatever kind, then those people are divorced. If you are actually divorced, you cannot commit adultery anymore. You just can't do it you're not married adultery is for married people so I would argue for remarriage as a possibility in that case certainly not mandatory but possible so putting together what Jesus says in all four of the Gospels and I realize I didn't read to you Mark and Luke but I'm just gonna add them in in this chart here uh, we have these four general principles one a husband who divorces his wife except for pornea makes her commit adultery presumably because you'd have to get remarried in order to survive in that culture Number two, a man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Number three, a husband who divorces his wife, except for pornea, commits adultery. So, uh, on the one, it says, the, the husband makes the wife commit adultery if you marry a divorced woman, but like, what about the guy who divorced her? Can he get get away with it? Well, in Matthew 19, Jesus gives it, gives it back to him as well. A husband who divorces, so he's covering every different angle of this thing. It's a bit complicated, but... He commits adultery against her, is what Mark 10, 11 says, which is totally progressive, considering that they didn't think that women had equal value a lot of times in their society. But Jesus is recognizing, no, you can commit adultery against her, that she, she does have that right, that dignity. Uh, then number four, a wife who divorces her husband and remarries, commits adultery so and that's mark 10 12 so we we have all the different scenarios filled in there i love verse 10 what the disciples said to jesus i mean i don't love it i i I think it's funny they said if such is the case of a man with his wife it's better not to marry (laughs) jesus if it's like this maybe i'll just stay single (laughs) but he said to them not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made, them, made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So the disciples are shocked. They say, well, maybe she we shouldn't get married. Well, yeah. Yeah. If you're, if you're looking for a way out before you get married, you shouldn't get married. That, that's right. You know, like... If, if you're thinking, like, all right, well, if, she, if she's not a good cook or whatever, like, no, you shouldn't get married. Uh, but, it, but if you recognize the Genesis 2.24 aspect, the creation theology undergirding the, the biblical understanding of marriage, that it's a, a man and a woman, that they, they are apart from their parents, they cleave to each other, and that God unites them together, then, and that what God has joined together, let no humans separate, then, yeah, get married and don't look for a back door. Uh, So Jesus talks about these eunuchs. i just review that ever so quickly. You can go over to 1 Corinthians 7. We need to definitely hit that scripture because it's super relevant. On the eunuch aspect here, Jesus says someone, there are three categories. Someone who cannot have intercourse because of a birth defect, that's some eunuchs. Others are someone who's castrated or injured by others. And then number three is someone who chooses to live chastely for the kingdom. That would be somebody who's choosing singleness. And Jesus says, only to those to whom it is given. So you get a sense of calling when it comes to marriage, when it comes to singleness. uh, And that's a very different way of looking at it than we have today. But as we see here in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul assumes that that's the case. That where, where you're at is where God wants you to be. And otherwise, he'll let you know. So look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. This is the Apostle Paul. This is one of these uh, very interesting moments in his epistle here where he quotes Jesus. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord, the wife, should not separate from her husband. But if she does, isn't that that great? It's like, don't do it. But if you do... (laughs) This is, what, this is what, what happens next. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So this is the Apostle Paul, so far as I could tell, paraphrasing what Jesus had said. We read what Jesus had said. This is the same thing, but in different words. That's why I say paraphrasing. In Jesus' context, everyone's Jewish. In the Apostle Paul's context, he's writing to the Corinthians. There are a lot of mixed marriages. If you are a uh, convert to Christianity and your spouse is a pagan idol worshiper, what do you do? In that case, are you bound to that person still? Or you you have freedom in Christ. You, You can just go off and do whatever you want. That's a question that is very much alive for them. And so, verse 12, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord... Uh, this, is, this is really kind of a funny chapter too because he's, like, he's speaking on his own authority here, the apostle is. He says, I not the Lord. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, and I think I too have the spirit of God. <laughs> Which is uh, just kind of a, a different kind of chapter than a lot of other ones. But he's dealing with a very sensitive issue. He's navigating it. He's bringing them along, right? To the rest, I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman, and he does it both ways, right? Any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This is the idea of contagious holiness. (laughs) I love that. I love. That. You would think it's the other way, that they, the pagan would contaminate the Christian. Yeah. The Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. Holiness is powerful. Hol- holiness can spread. It can contaminate them. Right? And he's like, look, you s- one godly person can sanctify the whole family. <laughs> it's really a powerful statement. Verse 15, but, here's real life again, right? Sometimes the unbelieving partner separates. So what do you do then? If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. The literal translation there is bound. It's not bound. God has called you to peace. So he says to them, you can see how against divorce he is. He's like, Don't don't get divorced. If you get divorced, stay unmarried or or work it out. Come come back together, reconcile. But if they leave and there's nothing you can do about it, and we have this today in New York State divorce law that one party can initiate a divorce. And there's literally nothing you can do to stop that. At a certain point, it doesn't matter if you sign the documents or not, the court will grant the divorce. It does not take mutual consent under the current laws that we have. And he says, look, if that happens, you have an unbelieving partner that separates. Let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not bound. God has called you to peace. That's something, huh? How do you, and then I love this verse 16. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? <laughs> Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? I know they're an unbeliever. I know they're worshiping the pagan gods. I know they're an idol worshiper, right? But how do you know that by your Christian witness, you can't turn the tide the other way? If the unbeliever separates, let him go. But look, he's not overturning what Jesus said. He's very conscious in in, uh, starting with the words of Jesus. He's like, look, this is what it says, not I, but the Lord, Uh, verse 11. Somebody read that, what did that say? Now for the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Right, depart, separate, divorce, these are all very synonymous terms. But if she does, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. He's not contradicting himself here. He's saying, look, if if it happens, it happens. Don't you be the initiator of it, let it happen. Now according to Jesus, we do have that exception clause. That's clear, right? That if there is sexual immorality, you can be the initiator of the divorce and then it would be a, a lawful divorce in the eyes of God and that if it is a lawful divorce in the eyes of God, you would be allowed to remarry. The other case would be if the spouse dies, you would be allowed to remarry. Everybody agrees on that, ancient and modern. Well, except for the Hindus. I think the Hindus don't believe that, but we're not Hindus. Uh, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. There's that idea of calling. Right? Jesus says, to whom it has been given. The Apostle Paul says, this is, uh, the Lord has assigned him that kind of life. This is my rule in all the churches. Look at verse 27. We, we're going to come back to the rest of this chapter later. But verse 27 says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Verse 39, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think I, too, have the Spirit of God. So what's the law in New York State? In New York State, uh, in the United States, by 1977, nine states had adopted no-fault divorce laws, and by late 1983, every state but South Dakota and New York had adopted some form of no-fault divorce. South Dakota adopted no-fault divorce in 1985, Until August 2010, New York, which is where we are right now, still lacked a unilateral no-fault divorce statute. You think New York is so progressive, right? It's the last state of the 50 to approve no-fault divorce. Only if both parties notarized a separation agreement and lived separately for one year could a judge convert it into a divorce. New York Governor David Patterson, this is all according to Wikipedia, uh, signed a no-fault divorce bill on August 15, 2010. As of October 2010... Should be seven years ago, no-fault divorce is allowed in all 50 states and in the District of Columbia. So you don't have to prove that one of the parties breached the contract of marriage. You don't have to prove infidelity. You don't have to prove cruelty, abandonment, anything. You can just say we have irreconcilable differences and that can get the job done. Compared to what we see today, which is what we just read, Jesus' words are startling and controversial. They are. But remember, his own contemporaries 2,000 years ago, Shammai, Hillel, Akiva, he would have been controversial to them 2,000 years ago. We expect him to fit in today? We cannot go against what the Bible says if our goal is to practice biblical sexual ethics. We dare not call Jesus Lord and refuse to obey his words. question is, what's your standard? Is it New York State law? Is it Jewish law? Is it Hillel? Is it Shammai? Is it Akiva? Or is it Jesus? I think it needs to be Jesus. I don't want to, at the end of the day, I understand life is complicated, and in our broken world, we have innumerable difficult quandaries. And like I said, I'm not a guru to, to tell you exactly how to handle every situation. But Whatever we do, we don't want to defy Jesus. We don't want to cast his words aside and count them as irrelevant or outdated because then what are we standing on? We've just cut the branch we're, we're sitting on and uh, then there's nothing beneath us. Jesus doesn't ever sugarcoat Christianity either. Right? He says, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Be willing to die. I mean, Christianity is serious. It's not like a little add-on to our lives. But at the same time, we don't want to become the Pharisees Who are quibbling over some nuance of the law and saying and being judgmental and making all these other rules on top of what Jesus said? We want to. The great sin of the Pharisees, more than anything else, is they didn't care about the person. They cared about the rules, not the person. We don't want to become like that either. Jesus does this. He gives us this rule, but then you look at the rest of his example. He carries himself with grace. He carries himself with compassion and forgiveness, right? So we want to we be able to strike that balance like he did. And I think, you know, there's a lot of what ifs, and it's like the, the question of domestic abuse comes up. Well, what about somebody's getting beat up? Well, look, if you're getting beat up, get out of that situation. Just get out of it. Clear your head. Figure out a game plan for what to do. But don't stay in the house. How is that going to lead that person to Christ? Oh, come beat me, beat me up again. You know what I mean? Like, that's not... That's not at all in keeping with the spirit of this. Come up with a game plan, get some of God's wisdom on, on how to handle that situation. In, in studying this and looking at this, I realize I'm, I'm way over time, but I just, I just really want to say this. Um, uh, I'm particularly concerned about those who are not yet married, not just those of you in the room, but those who are watching this live and then later. It, it matters who you pick to be your spouse. It matters a great deal. Look, if you pick a, a violent man don't be surprised if he if he if he hits you later, right? Uh, if you pick a, guys, if you pick a drug adi- drug addict woman, don't be surprised if she's using drugs when she's pregnant with your child. Y- you got to use a little sense here. That the person we want to pick needs to be somebody that is godly, somebody that cares about God more than you. And if you do that, you've got a shot at it. Stanley Hauerwas talks about this myth in our generation that you get married to fulfill your dreams he says destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment necessary for us to become whole and happy the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry and that if we look closely enough we will find the right person how many times have you seen that in a disney movie (laughs) The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. (laughs) For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered into it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. Right? It's kind of a cynical approach, but I, I, I really appreciate it. That's to the, to the unmarried. Look, don't look for somebody that's going to fulfill you. Look for somebody that you can serve God with and that's going to have that sense of commitment as a foundation to the marriage. Not looking for a back door out because then you'll be forced to work out the issues as they arise. To the married... I came across, under uh, Dr. Yukonis' advice, uh, John Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Now this guy says that with a 91% accuracy, he can predict whether or not you're going to get divorced by observing you handle conflict f- on a five-minute video. 91%, he says. Pretty impressive. And he says these, these are four of the key things that, when he sees it, are main predictors for divorce so if you're married and you have these deal with them don't engage with them the first is contempt that's the idea of of looking at the looking down on the other person rolling the eyes and all that criticism that's attacking the person instead of ever dealing with the issue attacking the person uh i've got these outlined a little more in your notes defensiveness that's counter-attacking and never accepting responsibility and stonewalling that's where it's like i'm not going to talk to you we're, we're, we're not going to deal with this and that can be used to punish the other person. And he says, look, these are the four horsemen of the marriage apocalypse. <laughs> don't, don't go there. Uh, if you're married, avoid these pitfalls and adopt a tenacious, commitment-oriented mindset that will help you work through issues as they arise. In the end, Christian marriage is an intensified form of loving your neighbor as yourself. And it's a lot harder than loving your neighbor a house over because this person lives in your house and and they're not always on their best behavior. That's just when other people are over, <laughs> right? <laughs> so that's what I wanted to share about this subject. Well, I'm certainly curious to hear your thoughts about this. When I originally presented this as part of a class I did here at Living Hope on Christian sexual ethics, I was surprised that the hardliners were the ones that were most upset with me, that is, those who said, You can never get remarried, no matter what. I figured the people who would take issue with me would be the ones who want to propose a more liberal, more culturally common viewpoint. But in the end, hey, we're we're stuck with the Scripture, with Jesus. We're not here to change what he said, but to go along with it. So uh, if you have something to say, why not stop by restitudio.org and find podcast episode 114 where you can drop a line. Also, I wanted to let you know that I'm coordinating a marriage conference coming up in early November. So if you are married or engaged and would like to spend a weekend together with a number of other saints in the Albany, New York area, we'd love to have you. If you need information about that, you can get it at lhim.org. That's Living Hope International Ministries, lhim.org. And the cost is $70 per person. It covers your food. It covers any other supplies in the room. And then housing is on your own. We're going to be basing a number of the sharings on the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. At the conference, we'll have a number of speakers and also a night out for dinner, a fancy dinner out, and some entertainment there. And then the whole program wraps up Sunday morning. We have a session before our regular service, and then our final Sunday service will also be focused on this marriage conference. So if you are able to come and you haven't signed up yet, why not go over today, right now, to lhim.org and sign up. We'd love to have you. Even if you have never been to anything before, you're welcome to come. And if you have any questions about it, send me an email. You can reach me at sean at restitudio.org and I'd love to answer them for you. Thanks for listening, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.